Hello, Radio listeners. I am very excited to be bringing you this new episode of season five. On this interview, I had Danielle Parada back onto the podcast to discuss the history of Afro Salvadoran Heritage Month, as well as Prudencia Ayala's historic presidential run. Of course, the name of this podcast is Radio Cachimbona. Cachimbona is a Salvadoran slang term for badass, which is why we had I had to have Danny onto the podcast to then discuss the badass Prudencia Ayala, who I don't think enough people know about, even within the Salvadoran community. And so we tied Ayala's actions to larger Black feminist movements, broke down the direct outcome of Prudencia Ayala's bid to the Supreme Court because she actually ran before it was legal for women to do so. And so she had to take up a bid to the Supreme Court to, to successfully start her run and just her larger impact on Le Salvador. And then at the end, Parada shares how folks can support her canton, which um, Danny's kind of do- doing ongoing work to support. So um, I hope that you all enjoy. If you want to support the podcast, you can become a Patreon and get early access to episodes like this. This episode premiered at the Patreons in September of last year. And you also get exclusive access to the season five lit reviews and the whole back catalog of past lit reviews, which are book club style chats with fierce women of color. I think there's something for everyone in the lit review. And I know that you all would really, really enjoy the Patreon content. And of course, it helps me as a solo host and producer to continue doing this work. Um, and another way that you can support non-monetarily is by leaving an Apple podcast review. There has still not been any podcast review for 2022. So please, if you are the listener who will change that, please do so. I would love you forever. And then also Spotify has recently rolled out a rating system for podcasts. So if that's where you listen, then please rate the podcast on Spotify as well. And I think that that's it. Um, I hope that you all enjoy this educational episode. And um, yeah, we'll talk to you guys soon. Bye. Cachimbonas. I am very excited today to have Danielle Parada back on the podcast to talk about Afros and a very important historical Afro-Salvadoran figure, Prudencia Ayala. But before getting into that, I just wanted to thank you for coming on to the podcast and ask how you're doing today. 
Thanks. Thanks for having me. Doing a lot better. I was a little sick last week, but feeling much better and you know, excited because the month of August was really popping for Afro Salvi month. So really, really in good spirits. So thank you for having me. Yeah, that's really awesome. Um, and I just am so happy that you're feeling better because you're volunteering to be a trooper and just do the interview when you were super sick. But that was not going to happen because <laughs> you, you needed rest. <laughs> yeah. And I'm yeah, I'm just really happy that you're doing better and that we can talk about this amazing woman and the work that you're doing with Afros now. Before getting into Prudencia Ayala, I did want to center your work with Afros, especially because the month of August was El Mes de Afrodescendencia for Salvador and it's September now, but that doesn't mean that we're going to stop talking about it. <laughs> Right. So could you share a bit about your work with Afros and what the mission of Afros is? Yeah. So um, just to give a little overview of how I even got involved, I would say that I got connected with Afros like on Facebook. They were really active on Facebook for a while before they started becoming more active on Instagram. And Mm -hmm. it was basically just a page for people who were wondering about where their roots came from, where they could talk Mm -hmm. and like share resources, share links, photos, like things like that. Um, And then, so that's how I got involved. I would just share like my experiences with people. And eventually that became an actual organization over there in El Salvador. And so we've always, yeah, so we've always kept that communication with folks in El Salvador. And so Now the diaspora has gotten more involved because now that they're more organized, it's like uh, kind of like a place that we can like work from with the diaspora. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's how I've been more involved with Afros. And so, you know, last year we had like small, you know, mentions of Afro Salvadoran History Month in August. And we had some information out during Black History Month in February. But mm-hmm. for this year, we wanted to really go all out all out because a part of our mission, the main the main mission has been for a while to uh, make that the the black history of El Salvador visible because for a long time it's mm-hmm. been invisible, right? So that's One of the main missions was Mm -hmm. to make it visible. And we all came to that conclusion kind of when we were starting this collective um, on Facebook, because we're just like, how does no one know this information? Mm -hmm. How do I not know this information? And then through our collective um, conversations and research, we realized that it's like a purposeful denial from the state. And so that's why the main mission is to just make it visible the history. So like, if you look at a lot of the content Mm. that we have, Mm -hmm. it'll say things like I exist, you know, like this history has been erased or, or a lot of mention of erasure. Um, and so we wanted for this month to be really about visibilizing that history, um, and making it the forefront of what it means to be Salvadoran for some people. Right. So that's how I got involved. And I was like, okay, so yeah. What is the best way to teach people about this history without it being like boring or it being, I don't know, sometimes we'll talk about history and it'll be a mm-hmm. lot, right? It'll 
there's a lot of layers that especially diaspora don't understand because if you think about it, mm-hmm. like we've been taught a lot about U.S. history and that's taken like how many years, like 10 years for us to get an understanding of like the layers, even still, we, mm-hmm. we're still learning, right? So like trying to learn about 500 years of history in El Salvador is really overwhelming mm-hmm. if you have nowhere to start. So I was like, okay, so if it's Afro Salvadoran History Month, let me focus on that. And let me try to read some of these things that I know is really hard for people to get through because sometimes it's in mm-hmm. Spanish and then it'll be in like old Spanish, you know, like old English, but old Spanish and it'll be hard to understand. And so I decided to mm-hmm. do that work because I realized also that part of the issue is that a lot of these conversations are happening in happening in academic spaces and so like a lot of the people that need this information won't get it because it's it's being um kind of in in this academic world right like it's kept in this academic world so that's why i thought that um infographs on instagram was the best method because you have to keep them short there's a limit as to how many slides you can have they're visual right a lot of times have pictures And so I thought that was the best way of visibilizing the history because it's something that Mm -hmm. everyone has access to. Everyone can share um, and not share just like with themselves. But I know that lived throughout these different eras throughout the whole history of El Salvador. Right. Because we a lot of times we focus on one era and that's the Maximiliano and and this Martinez era. Right. When they were expelled, supposedly from the country, which also is is not true. And so I wanted to focus on events in time where we might have heard a little bit, but we never thought to picture black people in the in that moment. Right. So that was the main I think the main purpose of of the of the whole series for me. Um, And it was something that I just decided to do because I was already reading a lot of these articles and and folks were asking me, decided Mm -hmm, to just mm -hmm. have it in one spot for people to have access to for free. And so that's how we, that's how we came to the, to the whole Afro Salvi history series that we're going to keep going with because there's still a lot that people don't, don't know. And Mm -hmm. I teamed up with, Brianna, which is another Afro Salvi, and she mm-hmm. Salvadoran, yeah. right? And so I thought they were a perfect person to like visualize these these events. So it was a lot of conversations that we would have back and forth about what does it look like. Um, we had a lot of drafts about okay, what is what is this event? What would this look like if you were like watching this like on a TV or if you were like a fly on the wall, right? And so that's why we made sure that the the visuals had an emotion to it as well. It just didn't just show it, but it showed the mm-hmm. emotions and like the people, the power dynamics and all of that because that's the reality that that happened to some of our ancestors, right? So that was a great collaboration between us um, that I really appreciated. Mm-hmm. So shout out to them. That's really awesome. And I think it's really cool that you've been able to work with, Salvadorans themselves. And I wanted to ask, what have those linkages been that where you've been able to work transnationally to uplift this work? Yeah. So this work really started, like I said, on Facebook. Like I know a lot of people have just think of Facebook as like a classroom where there's teachers and you're just (laughs) with like a bunch of kids that you won't necessarily be friends with. 
right? I'm not very active on Facebook, I'll say. But you're in this classroom? Yeah, it's awful. Yeah, because right? I'm like kind of a younger millennial and I don't know, I just don't really get it anymore. And you hear everyone's opinion <laughs> and sometimes you get hit in the head with something and, Sounds you know, awful. and then Twitter is more of like the, the lunchroom <laughs> is what I like to call it. But mm. on Facebook, a lot of people from El Salvador are on Facebook right now. A lot of the like activists are on Facebook. A lot of the groups are on Facebook. They're just now coming more to Instagram mm -hmm. and Twitter. People on Facebook, especially from Oriente, a lot of people from Oriente are on Facebook. So the reason why I was still really active on Facebook is because I am from the DMV. And for some reason, the DMV until recently wasn't active on on Twitter and Instagram like that either, like the West Coast, right? So we would have like very close connections just transnationally to people in El Salvador all the time here in the DMV. So Salvadorans growing up, going to El Salvador a lot during the summers, we have a lot of people mm -hmm. that come to this area to establish themselves after they've migrated here. There's just a, like a lot of transnational relationships in this yeah. area and it, especially mm -hmm. to Oriente. So that's why I was still on Facebook and, and having these conversations with people at Afros. And so, you know, it was a natural thing to communicate with mm -hmm. these folks mm -hmm. in El Salvador. It didn't seem too weird to me. It was something that kind of came natural to me because I was already like connecting with my primos in El Salvador. I spoke Spanish. I knew how to write in Spanish. So that was never too much of an issue. I guess the issue was we didn't understand each other yeah. in the sense of, you know, I didn't know much about El Salvador uh, Salvadoran history, like period. Right. And they didn't really understand what it meant to be Salvadoran in the diaspora, right? In, in somewhere like Virginia, where I grew up, right? And what people don't realize is that Virginia, I like to call it like, is one of the original like places mm -hmm. of the U.S. Like the U.S. was born out of Virginia. The first enslaved Africans set foot in Virginia. Right, right. You know, right, right. the first four presidents came right. from Virginia. So Virginia has a lot of like this really deep rooted history. So my experience as being Afrodescendiente in Virginia has been people asking me like, oh, do you have like native ancestry and, and are you black? Like all these questions that would make me kind of ask my own questions about my own history, come to find out that Afro Salvadorans in El Salvador were having similar experiences where people were like, where are you from? Like, where where are your ancestors from? Like, you don't look like you're Salvadoran, right? And those might sound different, but but they're actually very similar experiences, right? Where people are seeing us as um, not fitting the 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 stereotype of what mm. a Salvadoran is because of our skin color and our hair type, right? So while we were we grew up in very distinct places, right, with distinct languages being the dominant language group in our, you know, growing up, we still had these similar experiences based off of our Afro-descendancy. So that's what really tied us together, where it's like, okay, a lot of times older people will tell us, like, you don't know what it's like to be Salvadoran because you grew up here. You don't know what that is, blah, blah, blah. You'll hear that a lot, right? Um, and it is true to an extent, right? But a lot of Afro-Salvadorans in El Salvador will tell us, no, that's actually an experience that I've had too. And you're a lot more connected to us than you realize. So that's how we've been able to kind of just like flourish this really natural relationship, 
especially diaspora Afro Salvadorans with those back home, because it seems that no matter the space that we're in, whether it's Salvadoran or not, we just don't fit into those spaces. And so we had to create our own space where we felt safe, where we felt safe to express our history, felt safe wearing Afro hairstyles, right? Where we didn't feel like our safety was at risk, things like that, that didn't really exist for us growing up. And so we had to create it. And so Mm -hmm. that's why it became so natural to become friends with people in El Salvador, because we just had this very similar experience in a way. Yeah. And the last time that you were on the podcast, you talked about how anti-Blackness is a global issue. And so that plays out in both contexts, both, you know, in the Salvador itself and then within communities of diaspora. And so that is where those linkages come from. And that's why you're able to relate to those experiences of being racialized or being otherized. And I just really appreciate you always, you know, reminding us of these contextual issues. You mentioned that for you growing up in the DMV, it's already a very transnational community and you bond with Salvadorans with Afro-Salvadorans over the experiences of anti-Blackness that you all have had. And I wanted to ask about um, how that plays into the work that you do with your canton. I know you do fundraising stuff, but also wonder if you're Mm -hmm. doing some of the same programming you're doing here, there. Yeah, so that's a great question. And that's something that my dad and I are are starting to do the work in our canton. Um, you know, like a lot of our of the residents in our canton are indigenous or Afro-Indigenous descent, but not at, but not mm-hmm. everyone is, right? Because people that, mm-hmm. you know, aren't the original like families that originated that that canton have moved in, people have left, you know, so things have changed a little bit in the last 10 years, but a lot of the original families are still there. Um, And I've been really transparent that El Canton has been used as a labor force throughout the years, uh, depending on what the industry is. So I know for a while, well, right now they're the main processors for all the chickens for Pollo Campestre. So every chicken that is eaten from Pollo Capestre mm. has been handled from Canton El Brazo, every single one. Before that, they used to uh, grow produce, I believe. And then before that, they used to produce cotton, right? And then before that, whatever, I think coffee, whatever it was that needed to be grown and sold. And that's because it was owned by an two haciendas, not just one, Mm -hmm. but two. Um, And some of the direct ancestors of those hacienda owners still live in the canton, right? So we have some of these weird dynamics that go on sometimes. Yeah, that persists. Yeah, that, that definitely persists. For example, people that have more power in the community, like have positions of like power in the school or people that have, mm-hmm. um, we have an uh, Adesco, you know, whoever me- members on that tend to be lighter skinned, right? We see that lighter mm-hmm. skin goes up like in power in the community and, you know, right. And that's because of... Right. Colorism is still in play. It still shapes the society. Yeah, exactly. And some of the poorest people are Afro-Indigenous and Indigenous descent. 
right? Because right. they've they've right. been the main right. labor force for a while. Mm-hmm. Like the exploited labor force. Exactly, exactly. And so we see that those dynamics are playing out. And so my dad and I try to talk about, okay, how how to, you know, manage those type of dynamics while we also think about our safety, because sometimes those things can really impact safety, not only for yeah. us, but community members as well. So yeah, it's like something we're going to start talking about. Yeah, People definitely. definitely have always recognized their Afro-descendancy in El Canton. Like I've posted a few pictures of members from El Canton, um, we definitely have like very obvious Afro-descendancy there, Um, especially people of like my family, you know, members that have been there for a while since the start of the community. It's just when it comes to safety, sometimes people don't want to claim it, right? Or they won't leave their caserio for for their own safety. So it's like thinking about how do we make it so people can can freely claim their their afro-indigenous identity or indigenous identity without fearing not only um physical safety but social safety right like they don't want to be ousted or or exposed or whatever you know that might limit their their access to resources because this is already a very poor community right and so you see a lot of the the members that are more darker skin tend to stay in their in their homes right. and in their caserios. And since my dad is one of the only people that has been able to go up in social status, I guess, like socioeconomically, socioeconomically, he's the one that's been going back and saying, "Well, I know this person needs help, and I know this person needs help," and so they've been feeling more comfortable asking for help and assistance now that my dad's been more involved. But before that, no, no one cared, right? The people that were in power don't care because they're also direct descendants of the same people that enslaved some of those ancestors, you know? So we have those dynamics play out in El Canton and it's sometimes it's harder for my dad to, to wrap his head around that. This is like, you know, the same oppressive structures that you see in the U S are also in El Salvador. So that's something that he's also learning. Right. Because I think about when he left, he he was leaving the civil war. Right. So it was like, now that there's, they're trying to put structures into the society, Mm -hmm. right. That were torn down during the war, the same anti-blackness is informing them. So the same like systemic inequalities are going to exist, especially when you model them after something like the U S right. So I'm learning, you know, Salvadoran history, but my dad's also learning how like how El Salvador has changed and how anti-blackness looks like now compared to like during the war and how that impacts his work in the community as well. Mm -hmm. That's all super interesting. Thank you for sharing that. I wanted Mm -hmm. to move on and talk about Prudencia Ayala and Mm -hmm. ask, when did you first hear of her and her Afro-Salvadoran identity? Yeah, so that's been something that people don't like to talk to talk about a lot so it was basically i was just one day searching everywhere for i'm like there has to be someone famous that's like afro salvadoran that was like involved in politics or activism or something indigenous rights or whatever it is in the history of el salvador right like it's not like they just didn't exist or do anything in the country. Like I just couldn't, I couldn't believe that. Right. Right. I couldn't believe that that would be a thing. And so I would just randomly like, cause 
Another thing that I should add is that um, Dash uh, from Afro Latino Travel has mentioned several times that a lot of pictures mm-hmm. of like old older pictures of like national heroes or, or people especially like black people will be lightened so that they look less black in those pictures so i was just mm. like what if that was the case with people mm. in el salvador throughout history right um so i was just like searching like people's names and looking up different like afro descendant like identities right to see if like if there's any writing about their 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 history right or their um their family background. And so I was looking at Prudencia Ayala. I had read about her a little bit through like an Instagram post as like a, an indigenous woman who, who, you know, fought for women's rights. Come to find out she was actually the first woman to run for president in like all of the Americas, not just Latin yes, America, but amazing. including the U.S. and Canada, I believe. So I was like, that's such a big deal. Mm -hmm. And so I started reading more and more about her. I started searching, you know, if if she had any Afro descendancy, because I was like, this is so like revolutionary. Like, I know a black woman would be the one doing this, you know, Um, and come to find out I'm reading this book about her. And it says Prudencia Ayala is an Afro indigenous woman, period. That's that was the sentence. I've never read that before. Right. And then other people have also mentioned that she has Afro indigenous ancestry as well in other writings so i was just like wow this is something that they're just it's just another Mm -hmm. instance Mm -hmm. of like that that hiding that african history right Uh, erasure the erasure of it all you know and so i was yeah definitely so i was just i was really excited to learn that she was afro-indigenous and so i thought you know we need to we need to be correct about how we we say her her identity and her history and everything that she's done you know like she's a long line of black women that have risked their lives for for women mm-hmm. overall right so we think of like black feminists in the us well she's just a part of that history that long line of like that tradition and so i thought that was so important to put that right. context in her story because yes she was indigenous but she was afro-indigenous and she had a lot of those stereotypes that are used against Mm -hmm. black women especially afro-indigenous women like people would call her a witch a bruja because they they Mm -hmm. sense some like evilness in her right like that was part of how they tried to colonialism Exactly, yeah. exactly. And especially towards black women that are still in touch with their Afro spirituality, exactly, right? Yeah. And so why only call her a witch, a bruja, right. right? And not other women throughout history that have all that are also indigenous, right? Um, there is that stereotype a little bit in El Salvador, but it's more towards Afro spirituality. I I seem to to see the stereotypes and, and the negativity towards, right? Like how people react to like voodoo, how people react to like mm-hmm. Santeria and all these different things. And so to see that that was used against her to kind of reduce her impact or make her yeah. seem like, like what she was doing was just something crazy. Yeah, to diminish her, to like discredit her. Exactly, exactly. So it was just, I think, an important part that people were missing, right? It's not that she was just someone that decided to do this, but rather the conditions that she was living in because she was a Black woman made her feel like she wanted to go beyond the the conditions she was given, the social conditions, right? And I feel like that was very much informed by her Afro-indigeneity. Yeah, I feel like uh, it's just important to point out why her actions were so radical for the time period because women couldn't even vote 
And so for Mm -hmm. her to make that presidential run was really, you know, I think an example of Afrofuturism, of Black women willing themselves into the future and writing themselves into the future. She was creating a different world in in running. You know, she like created a different reality. Mm. And um, yeah, I just wanted you to break that for break that down further about and in the Caribbean and Latin America and and to think that she wasn't a part of that or a part of those conversations or reading those same same texts you know I think is naive she was definitely a part of that that doesn't mean that she wasn't maybe didn't have as much access as other people but she was definitely part of these like literary like black radical feminist like you know circles right for example and it's just not women too mm-hmm. there was also she was part of like these groups of revolutionary men too and we know that a lot of their politics have been informed by by black activism especially in the caribbean especially during the early 1900s right so it, it was it was her work has been impactful not only for women overall it's been impactful for the lgbtqia community and it's impactful for just Salvadoran, Latin American, and just the Americas, right? Because she did something that no one would have expected for a woman to do, but especially an Afro-Indigenous woman from an area of Central America, right? Like all of those barriers were going on at the same time. And she just so happened to say, you know what, like, screw that. I'm going to run for president anyway, because that's, that should be my right as, as a human being, right? Yeah, right. What so what was the outcome of her presidential run? I know that her running, as we've been talking about, had these larger like, cultural shift aspects of it, but what 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 actually happened in that election? Well, so her application for pre- to run for president was denied by the Supreme Court. So she didn't actually get the chance to have like a campaign and all that as like she wanted. But it was the catalyst for the feminist movement in El Salvador mm. and in Central America period, right? Hmm. Um, It also influenced people or women to run in other countries too, right? Hmm. So we saw this like movement of women running for these political positions, not only in in Central America or Latin America, but also the US, right? So that's why I'm saying she was just part of this like legacy of women that were reading each other's work and, and influencing each other, right? I just know that after she ran, like there was this like big movement. So there was like more, there's plenty, like a num- <laughs> numerous women that ran after she ran because it it was a big deal. Like I said, not only in Central America, but in all of the America. So it was like in newspapers and they're like, how dare this woman just decide to run, yeah. right? And that makes other women, right. well, if she's going to run, right. why can't I, right? So it was just like this very big catalyst for the feminist movement, I think overall, yeah. globally. I love talking um, about Prudencia Ayala with you and 
Also, it was super interesting to learn more about your canton. How can people support your work? So you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter, Sad Girl Danny. Um, I talk a lot about my work there. I'll have random tidbits about history. And also, that's where you can find information on how to support my canton. We're also setting up a Patreon um, for people that want to consistently support the canton. And, and we'll have like, We'll have special like mm -hmm. uh, exclusive videos and photographs for people. And also uh, my dad gives like updates on like how funds have been used in the month and what, what we're planning to do in the next month. Um, Because there's always work to be done in El Canton. So you can join us and supporting mm -hmm. consistently on Patreon. And I'll be uh, updating my followers on that work. Yay, that's super awesome. I hope that you get new patrons from this episode. And thanks so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. It's a pleasure having you. Mm -hmm.